tonight. Um, a very uh, helpful psalm, uh, one that we're going to see as uh, sort of tonight. It's going to be this sort of prayer uh, of deliverance that's going to be uh, beginning this psalm. And we're going to be ending with a very familiar verse there in verse number six about the, the words of the Lord. And so I hope to be an encouragement to you tonight and for us to have our minds um, and our hearts as well sort of rooted and grounded in the Word of God and all that God is, and all that He has promised uh, His people. So let's begin tonight, though, uh, by reading the, the Scripture, verses 1 through 8, and we'll pray, ask the Lord to help us and to guide us, and uh, we'll um, just work our way through the passage tonight. Psalm 12 begins, verse number 1, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. Who have said with our tongues will we prevail? Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. Now will I rise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. Let us pray. Fathers, we come to you this night. We're grateful that we can sing songs of, uh, of your praises and, and Lord, sing of, of the work that, that Christ has accomplished for us, Lord, so that we might have forgiveness and eternal life. Help us tonight now as we open up your word. And God, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to it so that we might not just hear or go through the motions of a Bible study, but Lord, that tonight we would be encouraged would be strengthened, and God, that we would uh, rest our hearts, our minds, and, and our whole life upon you and, and your word. God, we love you. We thank you for this time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here, the Psalms are full of so much depth and uh, so personal. One of the great reasons why I always recommend the Psalms to people to read, maybe for devotions or for encouragement and things, because even the Psalms that are prayers of asking God for help are still yet so encouraging because here's a man, uh, this, uh, we know this to, and believe this to be a psalm of David here. Uh, we don't know this particular time of his life, but it certainly seems to be a time where David was facing trouble. Now, we often remember David in a, in a few different places and, and lights, but he faced a lot of trouble as he was waiting for the deliverance from his enemies to be made king, uh, rightfully so, and to uh, have these promises of God to him fulfilled and these prophecies and things. And so, uh, as we see here in this psalm, he's going to be crying out and asking the Lord for help and for deliverance. The first four verses is really a, a prayer of deliverance. And reading something that seems so tragic or so discouraging is actually encouraging. That if David, who, by the way, is David, right? I'm not a David. I'm not Paul. I'm not Peter. Right? We try to equate ourselves with many of these uh, Bible characters and, and folks that God has used in the Scripture, but... If these are people who are, are heroes of the faith, and, and, and I'd love to be half of, have half of what David is, but yet David himself even finds the time and the place in his own life where he knows that even though he is the rightful king of Israel, even though he is the, the one who should have rule and authority and power and has won countless physical and military battles, that he is strong, he has persevered through so much, even he finds that he must cry out to the Lord for help. Now, this prayer of deliverance begins exactly as you would think a prayer of deliverance would begin. Help, Lord. 
truly this would be a powerful prayer of deliverance if that was the entirety of the prayer. How many times for you and I and the difficulties of life, regardless of circumstance or regardless of, of what it may actually be, that many times our prayers have only been, or all that we might muster up is a help, Lord. I want you to know the help, Lord prayer of those two simple words are just as powerful as a 30-minute long diatribe to God about how greatly you need His help. Sometimes it is the smallest and most simple of prayers that pack the most power and precision to uh, lift our hearts to God and to carry our burdens and our concerns to Him. Sometimes a help, Lord, is truly all that we might be able to muster, but truly a help, Lord, is all that we really need. The word help here is of, of importance here. Um, it is the word that really gives us the meaning of to save, um, uh, to, to receive or to accept help, and, and to be victorious. So here what David is praying is he's not just asking for a helping hand and asking for, God, I'm going to give all my strength and, and you just give me a little dash of yours and it should be fine, right? God's help is not salt on a, on a salt and pepper on a table, right? Salt and, pe uh, salt and pepper on a table, you sit down, you eat. If you're polite, you taste your food first. Then you salt and pepper what needs to be salt and peppered. There's probably about a handful of y'all out there who you sit down at the table, you grab that salt shaker, and you shake that thing till it's, you know, everything's covered, right? But nevertheless, when we look at the Lord's help, the Lord's help is not something that we just take to life and we sit down and we try to muster through what we can, and then we just throw a dash of His help and ask for it in there. We need all of who God is. David here is asking not just for a, a helping hand or for a, a little bit of a dash of God's help and strength, but he's saying and asking God, Lord, save me. I, I need to receive and to accept your help. I need victory. God, give victory. And the, the phrase Lord here, or this word rather, it is the title of God. Certainly he is God. And David could have said, help God. And that would have been acceptable, but help Lord, it is one that, David knows that he is his Lord, his personal Lord. The word Lord is one who rules, who has authority. And so this is David, who's the king of God's chosen people, yet he knows in this time of need, he needs help from the king of kings. He needs help from the one who has placed him upon the throne. He knows that he would not be on the throne, nor be king, nor have the promises of which he had in his life, or the victories that he's had so far in his life, if it were not for the king who sits upon the throne of heaven. He knows and trusts that God is sovereign and in control of not just his life, but the life of the children of Israel, and that he knows that if there's going to be any help to be had, it will be of the Lord his God. This reminds us, though, as well uh, of some things here that we see in just the previous psalm, uh, which is as well as Psalm of David. Psalm 11 tells us in the first three verses, In the Lord put I my trust. You see, when we look at Psalm 12, verse 1, Help, Lord, that's exactly what Psalm 11, verse 1 is doing. And the Lord put on my trust. When I cry to God for help, when I cry unto the Lord for help, what am I doing? I'm saying, Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm calling upon your might, your strength, your ability, your authority. And I am placing my life in your hands, which if we're really honest with ourselves, our life is always in his hands, whether we want to admit it or not. And so here, though, David is saying, I'm putting my trust in you. He says, how say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. Uh, there were others who were telling David, oh, you, you should run for your life, flee for your life, all of these things. He says in verse 2, 
of Psalm 11, for lo, the wicked bend their bow. Now you don't bend your bow unless you're, you're ready to, to strike, unless you're ready to, to attack, if you will. And so he's saying that they're really, literally prepared to take his life is the idea. They make ready their arrow upon the string that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. The upright in heart are the ones that verse 1 tells us are. They're the ones that put their trust in the Lord. He says that the foundations be destroyed. What can the righteous do? But then the hope comes. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold His uh, eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked in him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. He says for the, uh, verse 7, For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. So now as we come to Psalm 12, and he cries, Help, Lord! Help, Lord! Here we find that what has taken place in the life of David, and as we're going to see here in the next couple of verses, in the rest of verse 1, is that the wicked are, if you will, surrounding the faithful. And they seek to destroy those who love righteousness. He says in verse of Psalm 12, verse 1, Help, Lord. And then he gives the reason. He's essentially saying, Lord, I need your help. I need your salvation. I need your, your victory. He says for, or when you see the word for here, you can really sort of put in because, because the, the godly man ceaseth. Because the faithful fail from among the children of men. This is not a good thing. First of all, his first need of deliverance is the fact that he says, not that anyone is against him like he did in Psalm 11, where the wicked have their bow bent and they're putting the arrows on the string and they're prepared to strike and they're seeking to destroy the upright in heart. Here he says, it's the godly man that has ceased. It is the faithful that fail." From among the children of men, the idea of the faithful failing it is that uh, the failing part is that they have become weak or they have become, uh, it's the idea of, of to, to fail in, in battle, right? It is that they've become like stone or like a dead man. They're unable to move. They are no longer in the fight like they're supposed to be. And he says the godly man has ceased. The faithful fail from among the children of men. And then he says, they speak vanity, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. Now, these are some serious issues that he's facing. And David here, I would say he feels all alone. David felt all alone a lot in his life, a lot in his ministry, in his time as king, and in his time facing all the challenges and difficulties that he faced. But yet, was David ever alone? No, and he knew such. Right? This is the same David who would go on later to write, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He walks with me. He's my good shepherd. Right? The same David, the same David though here in this time, knows that he has got to place his trust solely in the Lord because looking around, he says, I can't place my trust in anyone else because the godly man has ceased. He says, the faithful fail. You know, David was not the only one to ever face this. This happened generation and generation and generation, and it's happened in our own generations and days where it seems that the godly man has uh, ceased and that the faithful fail from among the children of men. David feels as if he's all alone in this fight against unrighteousness and the rebels against God. Here David uses what is hyperbole of that that to show that it feels like the, all the godly and all the faithful are, are totally gone. 
It's as if David is saying, everyone that was godly is gone. They've, they've left. Everyone that used to be faithful has failed. I've talked to many of pastors, and, and there's many days that they feel such a way. I've talked to many people who, who are saved and in church for such a long time and have watched the changes take place in our nation, in our churches, and especially the, in the rapid way that it's taken place the past few years. And there's many of us who feel the same way like David. Lord, help us! Everything's gone awry. right? If the, as he had said in Psalm 11, uh, if the foundation be destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can we do? Right? The godly man ceaseth. The, the faithful man has, has failed. We feel all alone. Unfortunately, what COVID kind of caused is everyone became so separated. And everyone be kind of became more of an island than we already were. And let's face it, independent Baptists are really good at being independent. <laughs> Even to a fault. Right? We're, we're better at being independent than we are being Baptist. Right? And we treat ourselves like we're this sort of island and like, no, we, we often have this sort of idea that we're the only Lone Rangers, right? Fighting this fight, right? Didn't the Lone Ranger even have a sidekick? Right? Well, we don't have sidekicks. We've got other churches who are just like us, bigger, smaller, and even just like us, in our area, out of our area, and even across the world, who are preaching the same Bible, trusting in the same God, living in the same dark days, and many of which, if we should remind our hearts, many of which are facing harder things than what you and I are facing today. What you and I are watching take place that feels so impossible, that makes us feel all alone, is how dark our nation has gotten. And for you and I, we only see the world in light of the United States. We normally only see the church of America. We normally don't see the church of the world, which is global. And so you and I don't see the need of uh, of, of other countries and nations that are facing what real persecution really looks like. Right? You and I all walked in here today free as free can be. Right? We were free to drive up and down the roads. We were free when we walked in here. We're going to be free when we walk out of here. Right? Praise the Lord for that. But there are countless others throughout the world who are not free to go to any church of their choosing. They have to go to a government-sanctioned church that plays by the rules. Or they might have to meet in a, in a barn somewhere because they don't have a church house or they have to meet underground or they can't meet in such a group because it's outlawed or because of a danger in their life. Or how about this one that we take for granted? And we'll see the importance of this in verse 6. Many meeting right now throughout the world and there's maybe a Bible to go around for a whole group of people. Maybe even just a, a page or two. Maybe even just the Gospel of John. Maybe just a, a testament. And that's all they got. Countless pastors like me who are much more faithful though than me, who are much more godly than me, who have been preaching longer than I have and in more difficult places than I will ever preach. And all they've got is what they've got. But they trust the Lord. You see, you and I truly are not as alone as what we feel. And David was not either. But this does remind us of the same feeling that Elijah had. Right? Over in... You can take... Uh, and turn with me for just a moment. Eli, uh, over in 1 Kings chapter 19, just for a brief moment. 1 Kings chapter 19. Prophet Elijah had been uh, preaching at this point, been used of God for, for several things. And, and um, here at this point, he's now fleeing from, uh, from Jezebel. And now we come to verse number 9. It says, And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. 
And I'll break that down for you even further. Elijah the prophet, the mighty prophet, goes hiding in a cave. He's hiding for his life. He says, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Boy, isn't that just like us? Boy, isn't that just like many of the other prophets of, of the Old Testament and even the New Testament of going, I, I'm scared. And God says, well, for what? <laughs> David here, as he cries out for help for the Lord, the Lord could have said, for what? But no, the Lord is gracious. But here's what takes place in the life of Elijah, how he feels in his conversation with God. He says, verse number 10, And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. Notice that. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said unto him, Go, return thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt uh, shall thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and of Abel-Meholah, uh, uh, shalt thou anoint to be the prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. Him that escapeth the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Here Elijah receives quite the humbling experience. Twice. I am the only one left. All the other prophets are dead or they're not preaching or they're gone or they've thrown down the altars and all this stuff and I'm the only one. And He being the only one goes to hide in a cave to spare his own life out of fear. You see, then God comes and He tells him, I got 7,000 more in Israel. God always has her in it. Elijah goes from going, I'm the only one to now there's at least 7,001. See, you and I, and like David here, often think that we are it. There's many days where we feel so alone. There's many days we feel like we're the only ones preaching or the only ones being faithful or the only ones this or that. But not so. One commentator puts it, he says, Like Elijah later, as David observed the wickedness of society around him, he came to the conclusion that godliness and faithfulness had ceased. As we focus on our troubles, we only magnify them in our minds, which leads us to despair. Nevertheless, David turned to God in his despair. When there seems to be no other help, the Lord never fails. David knew that. Nevertheless, he poured out his heart to God, and it seemed as if there was no one else who stood for righteousness and godliness about him. 
I want you to know that the thing that we should be doing in our day and our age, as we talk about wise living, these sort of words to live by, is not for us to go, woe is me, I'm the only Christian that there is. Or woe is us, we're the only church that's any good that there is. And by the way, that's not true either. Right? We often look at this and we say, well, I'm the only one. Here's, here's what we do. We look around us and certainly we could see all the trouble around us. And yes, there's trouble around us. Sound the alarm, absolutely. But guess what? Our God is a very present help in a time of trouble. And instead of looking around at everything else, it would cause us to go, woe is me. How much worse can it get? How much longer, O oh Lord? The answer is simple. Till either you die or He calls us out of here. Until then, occupy till He returns. That's it. Right? Until then, keep living for the Lord until we die for the Lord, if that's what it means. David knows here, believe in his heart the reality that he's not the only one, but in this moment it feels such, and he asks the Lord for help. He describes furthermore the, the situation in verse 2-4. to four, He says, they speak vanity. Uh, these different, uh, sort of this fruitless things. He says, if they speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The reason why they speak in such a wicked way is because they have wicked hearts. David is living with, in, in wicked times surrounded by people with, with wicked tongues. And now with his tongue, he's asking God for help and he's telling him about the situation. It says in verse 3, The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaketh proud things. What does that tell us about our speech? It should tell us an awful lot. It should tell us that God takes the things that you and I say incredibly serious. That those who are flattering of the ideas use this sort of language to get what they want, get what they need, even a fruitless language, a, a vain language that he's talking about. He says, we'll, we'll, we'll cut them off. He says, the Lord's going to cut the flattering lips off. And the tongue that speaketh proud things. Well, what does God say about the proud? The proud will fall. even says that He hates those who and is a get, hates a proud look, hates a proud tongue, hates these, these lying, deceitful things. He says in verse 4, Who have said with our tongue, Will we prevail? Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? What a terrible thing to say. David sees the wickedness around him with the fruit being the wicked speech, the slander and continued attacks on the righteous. If anyone faced slander against him in any day, it was David. And literally, his own people turned against him. His own family turned against him. Many people came against David and spoke not just ill against David, but spoke ill against God. And let's not forget, when they were against, uh, against David, they were truly against the Lord. It was the Lord who had called and chosen David. It was the Lord who had blessed David. It was the Lord who had strengthened David. It was the Lord who had given the uh, throne and the authority to David. You see, their speech, the idea of these verses in this description is that they were full of lying, empty words. Y'all know what empty words are, don't you? Right? It's these things that are spoken that have no real meaning, have no real weight, or even um, go sort of uh, tied in with this sort of lying. It's just everything. You know empty talk when you hear empty talk. Furthermore, it was deceptive talk, constant deceiving trickery, lies. Where do those things come from? Do they come from the godly? No, they come from the ungodly. 
Why? Because it's Satan himself who is called the father of lies. It is he who is the accuser of the brethren. It is he who goes about to deceive and to destroy. So these are wicked people performing wicked things, being used of the devil to discourage God's man, to discourage the king, to discourage David, to speak ill against the Lord Himself. There was as well the idea of hypocritical speech. David saw these in his day. And certainly we see these in ours, don't we? And we don't just see these sort of speeches and, and sort of wicked tongues and, and wicked uh, mouths used for wicked things in the world. We do, don't we? Absolutely. Because that's what the world does. That lost people do what lost people do. But the sad reality is that we see it with those who are supposed to be God's people inside the church. Those things should never be. And this is the fruit of a double heart. The idea of a double heart reminds us as well of, the, of what the book of James tells us, a double-minded man who's unstable in all his ways. And then he's flip-flopping and going back and forth, righteous, unrighteous, and, and so, so full of turmoil because that soul is not truly trusted in the Lord God. But David trusts that God will shut the mouths that are open against God and against himself. He says, the Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. David knows that there is victory not only against the immediate context of those who are speaking against him, but he knows that one day the Lord will have enough. And in the first 11 Psalms, we see countless uh, times where God uh, describes this sort of thing where though it seems the wicked right now win, even though it seems that those who are unrighteous are living in victory and laughing it up and, and, and are able to say whatever they want against God's people or against God Himself, that God will have the last, the last word. And we must never forget this. Though it seems so harsh to think about the judgment of God, the judgment of God, though, is a comfort to God's people throughout the Psalms. Throughout the Old Testament, knowing that God will deliver His people, and the deliverance of God's people often comes in the form of judgment against the unrighteous or the ungodly. That is why when you and I talk about the future and the great hope of, uh, of being with the Lord, what else comes along with that? Right When you and I say and pray for the Lord's return, you know what we're also praying for? In the same sense, we're also praying for the protection, deliverance, and salvation of Israel. We're praying for the judgment against ungodly nations and ungodly people and for God to destroy the wicked. Now, when you and I say, I can't wait for Jesus to come back, we don't think about those other things, but truly for Jesus to come back, what else is going to happen on the other side of that coin? Judgment must take place and will take place and the wicked will be destroyed and God's enemies will be made His footstool. So we must remember these things. And it does bring about encouragement because though the wicked win right now, though the wicked seem to have uh, control right now, God ultimately is still yet on His throne and will have the final victory. Now then, look at this. Verse number 5 and 6 here. God's promise and words. Verse number, uh, verse number 5 tells us, For the oppression of the poor... For the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. 
Not often in the Psalms do we find where God actually answers directly the one who is praying in such a way. Many times it is some sort of allusion to it through the Word of God, through the the Scriptures. But here, it is as if you can imagine, David says, help, Lord. The godly are gone, the faithful fail, the wicked are prevailing. It's, It's bad down here. And then God says, because of the oppression of the poor, the sighing of the needy, it is this sort of groaning, this sort of, the, those who are in need of just, this sort of heaviness that comes with being so needy and, and in such turmoil and so, uh, such persecution and oppression. He says, for those, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. I love this phrase. That God says today, I will arise. What a truth this is. When God says He's going to do something, that means He's going to do something. So when God says, I will arise, this means for David, David can sit back and watch because God's about to to move upon his enemies. God's about to actually shut the mouths of those against him. God's saying, I will arise. This is a a future fulfillment. This is a, a fulfillment of one that God acts in defense and on behalf of the humble, the righteous, and the needy. Notice that God doesn't say, I will arise for those who are self-righteous, for those who uh, do the outward things right. He says, for the oppressed, for the needy, for the poor, for the contrite. This is who God uh, comes to. God promises and gives deliverance now. Now will I arise. But as well, this alludes to the futuristic and final victory that God will one day have over his enemies. It is both a promise for David there in that moment of going, David, I'm going to take care of those enemies. I'm going to take care of the oppressed and the poor and the needy of my people Israel who are facing this persecution, who are facing uh, the issues of this day. But as well, this is pointing to something far greater, that God will arise for those who are in need uh, of those who need salvation spiritually, but as well, for the coming day that we will have that full and final victory in Christ. He says, I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. You know, this is the great hope of the church of God today, isn't it? To be either, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, and that no longer the one, the devil himself, who puffeth against the church of God, will no longer be able to puffeth against the church. Satan will breathe out his last uh, accusation, He will breathe out his last deception and God will shut his mouth and cast him away forever and forever. Praise the Lord for such a truth to know that there is safety in the Lord and safety from our enemies. Because coming in with the moment we go into heaven is the moment we will face and have that full and final safety in the Lord from the world, the flesh, and the devil, our true enemies. But then verse number 6. God's words. He says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Notice how this verse contrasts the wicked hearts and the wicked tongues of the accusers of David and the righteous. Theirs are uh, vain, and with their lips are flattering, and they have a double heart, double minds, flattering lips, speaketh proud things. But what about the words of the Lord? They are pure words. 
The idea of pure is the same idea of holy. They're set apart. They're sanctified. They're pure and perfect. There is no slander. There is no false motive. There is no injustice in the things that God says and the things that God does. Now, the word here for the words, it is that of promises. So His words and His promises are are pure. This describes how God's character and His words and His motives are pure in, in everything that He does. Here, the, the psalmist likens the purity of God's very words to the finest of refined silver. He used the analogy of silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Seven important number, of course, of that of completion, perfection. Precious metals are refined more than once. In this case, as silver is melted down under intense heat, the dross floats to the top of the molten metal and is drawn off. The silver is then poured out and allowed to solidify. It is then melted down again, and further impurities are removed. And silver, which had undergone the refining process seven times, was thought to be absolutely pure. That is the analogy of which David presents regarding the very words of God. They are pure. We can also see Psalm 19, verse 8, tells us the statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Y'all know, and I hope you do tonight, that the Word of God, these words are of God. God breathed the living Word of God. That's pure. It is, it is no, no fault, no blemish in this book. This is God's revealing Word to us, but specifically for David, these are the promises that he says I will arise. I will give you victory, David. And the promise of God is pure, as are His words. We look here. The words of the Lord are pure. Totally contrasts the words of the unrighteous, but as well gives hope to you and I tonight, all these thousands of years later, that we can still yet trust the Word of God because His Word is pure. It is refined. There is no impurity in it. Therefore, it is trustworthy. Not just trustworthy to believe for certain things or laws or commands, but trustworthy for our very hope, salvation, and life. Our daily life. For our eternity. For our past. For our knowledge. For everything. And that His promises will and shall always remain true. We see this. David's reflection here in verses 7 and 8. Coming right after verse 6, right? The words of the Lord are pure words. Refined, purified seven times. He says, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now this sort of has sort of the double application here. One is that David is saying, Your pure words, you will keep them, Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation and forever. That is the great truth about the Bible. There have been countless people and groups, organizations, both religious and non-religious, who have tried to destroy the very Word of God. Who have tried to say that, well, this isn't all the way true, or, well, some of it's good, the rest isn't. But yet, God has preserved His Word. He has done so for thousands of years to allow the, the copies to be given down, to be translated. And by the way, it is a a beautiful thing 
and a worthy thing for someone to want to study the biblical language so that they too may go and translate. Do you realize that there are still uh, around 2,000 or give or take people groups who don't have the Bible in their own language? But yet God's Word has been preserved so that they too might be able to hear it one day in their own language. And you say, well, what's the deal and the, the reason about it being in their own language? Why is that such a big deal? Do you know that it wasn't until about 500 years ago that we, we started getting the Bible in the common man's language? Five, six hundred years at most. Before then, the Roman Catholic Church ruled with a rod of iron and would crush all who even spoke that, the, that men and women and farmers and, and merchants and average lay people should have a copy of God's Word in their own language, in their own tongue, that they could read for themselves. The reason why the Word of God is so pure and so wonderful and should be marveled at and, and appreciated and, and never taken for granted is because God has kept His Word, every promise that He's ever made, but as well as preserved it so that you and I might know Him and our very own tongue and language. Praise the Lord for such. We never forget that there have been many who have died or been imprisoned simply for translating the Word of God so that a little farm boy might be able to read and to know Christ. The words are pure. And he shall keep them. This as well is that David shows and puts here in this sort of reflection that he can trust God's Word and His promises because God shall keep them, that's His promise, and preserve them, which the preserve them is His people and His Word. It is twofold. God takes care of not only of preserving His Word, but as well as preserving His people who He has promised and given His Word to. That you and I, you might go, well, what about martyrs? How come He didn't keep them? He kept them. And there is such a crown for them that is probably unimaginable to even think of now. God takes care of His people, both now and into eternity. Whether we die suddenly, whether we die in our sleep, death is still a sure thing. Whether we die of martyrdom, death does not mean that God does not preserve or take care of His people. Rather, we are preserved to the end of our life in the faith that is in Christ Jesus and is well preserved throughout eternity because we are saved and sealed by the Holy Ghost of God. He says, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation and forever. But then look at verse 8. David continues to reflect. He says, The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. Here are the ideas that the wicked walk around as though that they are exalted in high places. He's saying that you've got these unrighteous and ungodly people who are walking around and they're pretending to be the ones that are in authority. They're pretending to be the ones that are in control. They're the same ones who in verse 4, David described as they say, Who is Lord over us? Well, the Lord is. Just had not submitted. Remember what David said in verse 1? Help, Lord. But the unrighteous and the ungodly, they say, Well, who is Lord over us? It is the ungodly and the lost soul today who believes that they are their own Lord. They are their own captain of their own ship. This is the sad reality of every lost soul today. That they do not know our life, this world, doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. He is the, cre he is the Creator. We are the, the mere creatures. 
He is the potter. We are the clay. He says the wicked walk on every side, meaning he's surrounded by these wicked people. And he says when the vilest men are exalted. David knows that even though if evil men are ruling, that God, the righteous judge, ultimately rules and shall protect his people and one day bring about justice. You and I would say, even regardless of, of how this past you know, vote for governor or whatever might have went, I don't, I don't really care. We vote, we cast our vote, whoever's in office is in office, but we would say this, regardless of whether it's red or blue in our state, there are, seems to be surrounding our entire nation wicked rulers who have been exalted. Furthermore, not just in politics, but in church houses, in homes, wicked people leading people down wicked paths for wicked purposes. So where is our hope? Our hope is found not in the people or the rulers or the things of this world, but rather in the justice and in the purity of God's Word and that one day He shall have the final say. Our reflection tonight is this, and we'll, we'll, we'll close. Trust the Word of God. And have the assurance that you can trust the Word of God. If you tonight can trust the Word of God for something as simple as salvation, right? Maybe the Gospel or, or Romans 10.13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you could trust that tonight, you know what else you can trust? Genesis 1.1. You can trust, if you can trust Genesis 1 1, you can trust Revelation 22. You can trust everything else in between. Either you can trust it all or you can't trust it at all. And I want you to know you can trust it all. And we must. These are the words of life. Trust the Word of God. Second, trust in God's rule. Though it seems the wicked surround us, though it seems we're all alone sometimes, we're not. Though it seems that the wicked might have their way far longer than they should, know this, that God will one day, whether it's on this earth or in eternity, God will have His rule and His reign. Justice will be served. And we are truly on the winning side because we cry out to this Lord and we trust in His pure words. Lastly tonight, know and rest assured that you are not alone. Look around. Right? I'm, I'm preaching the choir and then some tonight. I remember during COVID, the first little part, I literally only preached to a camera and my wife behind the camera. It was a real joy for her. <laughs> she couldn't wait for the doors to open back up, right? But I remember the, the difficulty of how strange that was because you just go, I'm preaching to myself. I'm just preaching to one person. It, it, it's weird. I'm all alone in here. You see... You look around tonight, and we're not alone. And if we were to truly be honest with our own selves and we were to look around this world, even just around our own area, there are plenty of other Bible-preaching churches who are serving the Lord faithfully, some smaller, some bigger, some who, who might not have a piano. They, instead, they have a guitar and a bass and maybe a little drum kit. But nevertheless, if the Word of God that is pure is being preached then praise God, we are not alone. God has His remnant and God is using His people that are faithful to Him because He is faithful to us. 
May we trust in our God and we trust in His Word. And may we work together for the furtherance of the kingdom as we preach these pure words of life to the same lost and dying world who not only will one day face justice, but to the same world that God desires that they would come to repentance now. They need to hear these pure words. It's our job, our responsibility, our privilege even, to not only know these pure words of God that have been preserved for us, but preserved so that the lost would know and hear about this God who is mighty to save. May we hold forth these words to the world and close to our own hearts so that we would be encouraged and strengthened to continue to press forward. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this night. Grateful that we can sing Your praises and study Your Word, Lord, that You have preserved and kept for us. Lord, You've kept Your promises. You've kept Your Word for us, Lord, that we might know You and trust in You. Help our faith to be strengthened by You. God, I pray that as we leave here tonight, we would leave here encouraged. We leave here strengthened that we might be able to study Your Word and to know You more so that we might as well, God, take this Bible that You've given to us and carry it out into this world and tell others about You. Lord, help us to know that we're not alone. Lord, You are certainly with us, therefore we're not alone. But Lord, we have brothers and sisters in Christ here in this church and throughout the world who are serving You and trying their best to be faithful. Help us to be faithful to You, God. and Help us to praise You for Your faithfulness to us. Lord, watch over us now. Go with us. And Lord, I pray that You keep us safe when we meet again and use us for Your honor and for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. You all have a blessed